You're listening to Byzantine Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture in collaboration with the Melkite Eparchy of Newton. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and director of the Institute and host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us, cleanse us of all stain, and save our souls, O good one. Welcome back to all of our participants for our Byzantine lectionary reflection for Cheese Fair Sunday or Forgiveness Sunday as we begin the journey of Great Lent together. The church places before us two important gospel texts or two important biblical texts, I should say, one from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 through 21. So if you want to write these down as we go through them, you'll have them for your further study. Matthew chapter 6, verse 14 through 21. And Romans chapter 13, verse 11 through chapter 14, verse 4. So let's jump right in here, Father, and, uh, and take a look at the gospel text in Matthew chapter 6, verse, starting with verse 14. The Lord said, if you forgive men their offenses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their offenses, neither will your Father forgive you your offenses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites who disfigure their faces in order to appear to men as fasting. Amen, I say to you, they have had their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you may not be seen by men to fast, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures in, on earth, where, where worm and rodent consume, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay out for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither worm nor rodent consume, nor thieves break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there also will your heart be. Father, we're given this, this text today and the epistle text. I would say with a theme, uh, as I was looking over these things, it really is... There's a, a phrase that comes to me from from the the uh, the ancient philosophers that that you cannot give what you do not have, and the church is asking us to kind of look inward this Sunday, as she often does, to examine our heart to make sure that what we're doing exterior to us or what we're doing on the outside to make sure our our acts are in conformity with what is in our heart that we're not living some divided life. Uh, but here in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6, I'm asking you to just drop us in here to Matthew chapter 6. Where does this text fit in the, the, in the whole of the Gospel? Why is Jesus teaching this now, and who is he speaking to? So this is early in the ministry. This is called the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, it's about halfway into the sermon here, toward, coming toward the end of it. And uh, Jesus has just given his disciples the teaching on how to pray. 
the Our Father, this, the text from which the passage from which we get the Our Father, and it's in Matthew's Gospel that we get this extra little uh, conclusion onto the Our Father, uh, which we began our reading with uh, with today of of you know being careful to make sure we forgive each other as we would like to be forgiven by our Father. For if we are are not forgiving of, of others, then we will not be forgiven by our Father. So there's a very stern warning there. Now there's 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 much to say on this text from a moral standpoint, from an encouragement, from a homily standpoint, but there's also a lot that's left un, unsaid in this particular piece. I oftentimes say we jump into our gospel text like a like you know flying over in an airplane we parachute in and we don't understand what's going on around us so i'm going to ask you just a couple of questions about that who are the hypocrites who's he going after here so the the sermon on the mount begins with there's the beatitudes of course but as he begins to get into his teaching where he says you know you have heard that it was said but now i say to you where he gets into the meat of the teaching before he does that he says in verse 20 of chapter 5, so this is the previous chapter, he says, I tell you, unless your righteousness, that is obedience to the Torah, unless your righteousness exceeds that of a scribe and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Mm -hmm. The kingdom of heaven in Matthew's gospel, the kingdom, the kingdom that he is, he is coming to establish, the new kingdom that is being established this moment. And those are some very strange words to hear. How in the world can your righteousness exceed that of a scribe and a Pharisee? And what he goes on to show is that there's a, there's a principle that's behind all these laws. You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder. I say, do not be angry. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. I say, don't even lust. If you've lusted, you've already committed adultery in your heart. If you're angry, you've already murdered that person in your heart. And so the, the Pharisees were, were certainly keeping the, the law, the exterior of the law. They were keeping what the law said. It said, do not murder. It said, do not commit adultery. And so they did these things. And then they thought, well, I am therefore righteous. I'm keeping the law. And Jesus shows them that the law, the whole purpose of the law, as Jesus will say later in the gospel, as, as some of the lawyers will even say in the, in the, later in the gospel, the whole purpose of the law and the prophets is, or the whole purpose of the law is, the law and the prophets is to love God, and your neighbors yourself. And in that, the law is fulfilled. The law and the prophets is all fulfilled. There's all the purpose of, the, of everything we find in the Torah, and in the commentary on the Torah, the, the prophets, was to direct them to that. And so, here then. In the, in the sermon, he tells them, look, your righteousness, the kingdom that's coming, the new covenant's coming, you're going to have to go beyond the Torah. You're going to have to go beyond what Moses taught. You're going to have to go beyond what the Pharisees are doing and how they're keeping the law. You're going to have to go to the principle behind the law because the purpose of the law was to keep you separated from the nations around you so that you could become like the one you've been drawn to, that is God and become that image and likeness of the Heavenly Father to the nations. You know, again, I go back to that, that, that phrase I, that I shared earlier, you cannot give what you do not have. Of course, the Pharisees were known for keeping the law, right? I mean, it might, they're, they're, they were keeping the law to every detail, it seems, except for one. I remember standing with you and Father Mark on the Mount of 
olives and reading that passage from the gospel of Matthew, where he goes after the Pharisees, he says, you whitewashed tombs that on the exterior, everything's looking good. You're doing all the things you're supposed to do, but inside you're, you're, you're filled with dead man's bones. Here, I think a, a very, the church is placing us before us not to go after the, the, the Pharisees, but for us to look at ourselves. You know, I, I came across this passage from St. John Chrysostom that I think is, is helpful for us. It says this, Nothing makes us so like God as our readiness to forgive the wicked and wrongdoer. For it is God who has made the sun to shine on the evil and on the good. Nothing makes us so like God as our readiness to forgive the wicked and wrongdoer. For it is God who has made the sun to shine on the evil and on the good. For the same reason, again, in every one of the clauses, Jesus commands us to make our prayers together in one voice, saying, Our Father, and thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven, and give us the bread, and forgive us our debts, and lead us not into temptation, and deliver us. So everywhere he is teaching us to use this plural word that we may not retain so much as a vestige of resentment against our neighbor. And how important that is, Father, as we begin this uh, season of, of Great Lent, that we have a true reconciliation with our brother, with our sister, with those in the church community in which we're living. We begin, of course, the, the journey of Great Lent with traditionally with Forgiveness Vespers, by which we uh, prostrate before one another and beg for forgiveness. And then do this beautiful thing. We say, it's God that forgives. God is the one who is acting in my life and is able to restore my brother to his, to his former glory as a son of God. Uh, but now we become the vehicle of that forgiveness. It's so beautiful and so challenging. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. We are asked to examine our heart then to find out where, where, and what is inside us as we're journeying toward this beautiful season of Great Lent. The epistle that's given to us comes from Romans chapter 13, verse 11, through chapter 14, verse 4. Fathers, I, I didn't ask you earlier. I just want to make sure, though, you got your Bible out in front of you, right? I want to make sure you actually have your Bible with you. There you go. Okay, Romans chapter 13, verse 11, through chapter 14, verse 4. Let's take a look at this text together. Brethren, now our salvation is nearer than when we came to believe. The night is far advanced, the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk becomingly as in daytime, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in debauchery and wantonness, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And as for the flesh, pay no attention to its lusts. But whoever is weak in faith, receive him without arguing about opinion. For one believes he may eat all things, but another who is weak, let him eat vegetables only. Let not the one who eats de despise the one who does not. And let not the one who does not eat judge the one who does. For God has received him. Who are you to judge another's servant? To his, his own master he stands or falls, 
but he will stand, for God is able to make him stand. Father Sebastian, this comes to us from the epistle of St. Paul to the Romans. It's the same, um, it occurs to me, the same uh, epistle by which we have a beautiful text for our baptism, the baptismal text from St. Paul that's so famous from Romans chapter 6. Can you give us a little context here in Romans? What's going on in the community that St. Paul's talking about salvation is, is, is so near and encouraging them put on the Lord Jesus Christ and then talking in such a way about, about what is, what is eaten and what's not eaten and not judging our brother. Mm -hmm. The, well, the, the church in Rome at this stage, we wouldn't want to think of, you know, Vatican city or something here, the church in Rome, we're talking about an actual church in the city of Rome, just like a church in the city of Ephesus or Corinth. And Paul's writing to them because there's a problem in the community there. They've fallen into the Judaizer heresy, which was something that happened, you know, among many of the churches there. The letters, the letter to the churches of Galatia, the the, the letter to the Galatians is a um, is, is covers the same topic. And so, in both letters, you you hear between the letter to the Galatians and Romans, you hear a lot of similar comments by Paul. For example, what you just pointed out there in chapter thirteen, verse fourteen, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That should maybe make us think of Galatians 3.27, right? All of you who have been baptized in Christ have put on Christ, right? So the, the problem in the community in the, uh, to this church in Rome is they're thinking, the Jewish Christians in the community think that they, they need to be keeping the law. They still need to be keeping uh, the kosher laws, making sure their boys are circumcised, etc. And then they're also imposing the Torah the, the law from the Old Testament upon Gentiles who want to come to the church. And so Paul has to deal with that in the first few chapters, of the epistle where he shows him, he says, look, whether you're a Jew keeping the Torah or you're a Gentile worshiping pagan gods, you're all under the wrath of God because both of you, whether Gentile or Jew have fallen short of the glory of God. Both of you have fallen short of what God has called you to the, the Gentile, has murdered and has worshipped, you know, foreign, uh, worshipped pagan gods and et cetera, et cetera. But if you look at the history of Israel, who received the special law at, at Sinai that specifically said, don't do these things, they went ahead and did it anyway, right? We know the history of, of Israel in the Old Testament. And so he says, he says, whether you're a, a Jewish Christian or a Gentile Christian, your salvation is not based upon your genetics, your past, your background, but rather having repented in your heart, changed your life, and been baptized into Christ. In Romans chapter 6, where he, he, uh, he deals with that, he says, all of who have been baptized in Christ have died with him and buried with him and raised with the newness of life. And, and if Christ has been raised from the dead, we too shall be raised from the dead, right? as that epistle goes on. And so, this is, he's continuing to deal with that here later on in the, at the end of the epistle. He reminds them of this, is that they're looking forward to a coming day of the return of Christ, when they will finally receive the, the um, or finally the, what they are in their baptismal grace will finally be revealed, as he says in chapter 8 of this epistle. Our, our glory will finally be revealed and will share in the resurrected glory of Christ. And so we also hear, though, in chapter 14, the tail end of this reading for today, about the divided community 
this this these Jewish Christians and these Gentile Christians are divided at all sorts of levels. One of them is just on what they're eating on a daily basis. The Jewish Christians, just like any Jews in the inner city, would have stayed away from any type of meat. And the reason for this is because the meat, there's no way they could have gotten meat butchered in some sort of a kosher way. And so the Jewish Christians are still doing what the rest of the Jews are in the city. They're remaining vegetarian. Most Jews in this period in a big city like Corinth or Rome would tend to be just vegetarian, not for health reasons, but because there was no possible way to get any meat that had been butchered or raised and butchered in a kosher way. And so that's that that issue here that we find at the end of the, at the epistle, that the weak man eats only vegetables. You still have Jewish Christians who are still following the old Torah and are still concerned about whether or not this food has been butchered in a kosher way. And Paul says, look, if this guy's doing, if he's, if he's eating only vegetables, though he's weak in faith, that is, he doesn't understand his baptismal grace, the fullness of what's happened in the new covenant. In the end, he's doing it because he loves God and he's trying to do the right thing. And you who are eating meat, you're doing it because you, you appreciate your baptismal grace and you love God. So in the end, let's, get, let's, let's love each other. Now, wait a minute, Father Sebastian. You're telling me and all of our participants, if we understand that we've been baptized in Jesus Christ, we don't have to keep the fast. Because <laughs> we have to eat just, it's okay, just vegetables. Or uh, it's, it's the weak man only eats vegetables. I, how can we understand this text? Why is the church reading, the, of all texts to read, why are we reading this right now? On the day before we enter into... I ask that question every time we have a fast and we have to do this reading. Why are we reading this? The weak man eats only vegetables. I'm trying to explain to the people the fast and we're reading this. You're right. Do you really want me to answer that? Or do you want I do, to... I do, yes. So, you know, I, I think it's good and I'm sure you'll have some wonderful catechetical comments to add to this, but you know, I, I think it's good to ask that question. Why do we fast? Why are we going to give up meat? Or, well, historically, we're joining in the fast of the catechumens, right? The catechumens were fasting and preparing themselves for their coming baptism on Pascha. And so the, the catechumenal sponsors, the godparents, and then eventually the whole, the whole congregation started fasting along with them to kind of go through, to encourage them, the catechumens, and then also to kind of renew in a certain sense our our, our own baptismal commitments. And so uh, that, that's the basic reason why we have our fast, of course, the great fast. But the reason why we fast, it's very simple. And, it, and this is very important, I think, as we enter into the fast. We think sometimes that fasting will change God. If I, the more miserable I am, the happier God must be. Right? <laughs> if I give up the things that make me happy, the pleasures of life, the good things, the prime rib, then that just for whatever reason, it makes God happy. Well, that's not, God doesn't change, it's immutable. So what fasting in the essence is, is an opportunity, a regular opportunity, whether we're talking about the great fast or we're talking about the Wednesday, Friday fast or whatever fast throughout the year, we're talking about a regular daily or weekly opportunity to give something up that we're yearning for. And so when we open up that refrigerator, you know, after cheese fair Sunday has passed, and we see that we forgot a nice big chunk of well-aged cheddar sitting there in the fridge. And it's lunchtime and I'm hungry. What am I gonna do with that? 
well, it's well-aged cheddar. I suppose it'll last in the fridge for a while. And we have to reach over and grab a head of lettuce and make ourselves, chop ourselves up a salad. Or maybe reach over and grab a carrot, fight on that, and we close the fridge. What we've just done is make a choice between two things. A thing that we're yearning for and something that we're not necessarily yearning for. But we've, we've chosen to, to do something contrary to what our body is yearning for. And in doing that, we've exercised our willpower. We've a little bit of an exercise in willpower to choose between two things. And it's just like when we, we um, you know, when, when we first start exercising, we haven't done push-ups in a while, we decide, I'm gonna do a push-up. So you do a push-up, <coughs> oh, I barely can do it. The next day, you can do two. Next day, you might be able to do three or four of them. Next day after that, you might be able to do five of them or pull-ups or some, some sort of an exercise. It gets easier the more we do it. And so every time we open that fridge, we see that cheddar, eh, I don't need that. Grab the carrot, bite it off. It gets easier because what we've done is we've strengthened our willpower. It's fasting is basically spiritual calisthenics. And what that is doing then, it's not God doesn't care whether we did a piece of cheddar or a carrot, doesn't matter, same color anyway. What what God is concerned about is our souls. He's concerned about ourselves. He's concerned about our salvation. And so this is why the church directs us to fast because in doing these little exercises of our willpower, opening that fridge and making a choice or standing there at the, at the counter at lunch during the middle of the fast with our coworkers and, our, and we hear people ordering a you know, double bacon cheeseburger and we can smell it and it's sizzling on the grill and say, next, yeah, I think I'll just take a, um, a house salad. Just a vinaigrette, please. What else would you like, sir? Just a, just a salad. What we've done is we've exercised that willpower so that when we're tempted by the things of this world, things that are actually evil, a cheeseburger or a double bacon, whatever, those things aren't evil, but they're opportunities to exercise our willpower so that when we're on the internet and we're surfing, doing, looking for something, all of a sudden we come upon something that we should not be seeing. We have the power, to, oh, that's not for me, click, close that window, right? We have the power and we're walking down the street or driving our car and we see something on a billboard or something walking down the street that we shouldn't be looking at. We have the willpower to avert our eyes, to look the other way and to not ponder these things. We strengthen our willpower through a simple act of regular giving something up, fasting, something that we want, that little cheeseburger that cheddar and in doing that we've we've suddenly become become uh, spiritual bodybuilders and we can now resist these things that are in the world that are actually evil we can make a choice between what is actually an evil and a good say no, no that is not for me this is for me you know with that with that um catechesis that background i want to just conclude today with one of my favorite passages from saint john chrysostom on fasting that I always like to refer to here at the beginning uh, as do it, with all of our fasts to go back to this text. It's a big reminder for us. And so I'm going to share this with you. Uh, it's a bit of an extended quote, but I think you'll, you'll appreciate it. Um, he says this, fasting is the change of every part of our life because the sacrifice of the fast is not the abstinence from food, but the distancing from sin. Are you fasting? Show me your fast with your works. Which works? 
If you see someone who is poor, show him mercy. If you see an enemy, reconcile with him. If you see a friend who is becoming successful, do not be jealous of him. Uh, in other words, not only should the mouth fast, but the eyes and legs and arms and all the other parts of the body should fast as well. Let the mouth fast from disgraceful and abusive words. Because what gain is there when on the one hand, we avoid eating chicken and fish, and on the other, we chew up and consume our brothers? He who condemns and blasphemes is as if he has eaten brotherly meat, as if he has bitten into the flesh of his fellow man. It is because of this that Paul frightens us, saying, If you chew up and consume one another, be careful that you do not annihilate yourselves. You did not thrust your teeth into the flesh of your neighbor, but you thrusted bad talk into his soul. You wounded it by spreading disfame, causing unestimable damage both to yourself, to him, and to many others. The Kentuckian that we chant in the church this Sunday says this, O you who guide men toward wisdom and give them intelligence and understanding, instructor of the ignorant and helper of the poor, strengthen and enlighten my heart, O Lord. Give me word, O word of the Father. For behold, I will not refrain my lips from crying out to you, O merciful one, have mercy on me who have fallen. To Christ our God be glory, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Byzantine Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.